Welcome to the sixth episode of Hey, we need to talk. Over the last few days, we have seen hundreds of thousands of farmers from mostly Punjab, but also other states of North India, descend upon the national capital in New Delhi to protest against a set of agrarian laws that they believe would change their lives forever. We have seen how the farmers met with fierce resistance, almost war-like resistance, from the Manohar Lal Khattar government in Haryana. which deployed all means at their disposal to stop the marching contingent in its tracks uh, from spraying cold water using water cannons uh, to shooting tear gas and even you know digging up trenches with bulldozers on the highways uh, to stop the farmers the government literally went all out um, to make sure that the farmers don't reach new delhi but in a dramatic 3 day showdown we saw how the farmers literally breached everything on the way from metal barricades barbed wires to f- uh, concrete barricades and even freight containers to ultimately reach new delhi purely on the basis of the steely resolve right despite the biting cold now if you want to know more about what these agrarian laws are and why the farmers are protesting against them you may visit our website www.11thcolumn.com and tune into the fourth episode of this podcast series with Devinder Singh Sekhon who's a Punjab based farmer and protest mobilizer but today i have with me amandeep sandhu who's a punjabi writer and freelance journalist amandeep has previously written two novels called cpa leaves and roll of honor but his last book is a non fiction called punjab journeys through fault lines which is based on his extensive travels through the state I have Amandeep with me today to help us make sense of what the protests mean in a broader socio-political and economic sense and how also the broader public including the urban middle class has been looking at the uh, farmer protest or reacting to the farmer protest. Welcome to the show Amandeep. Thank you so much Ankshuman. I'm very happy to speak to your audience. Amandeep I just want to begin with a sort of broad question. Uh, you have traveled extensively uh, through Punjab in recent years. Um, so, I, what I want to understand from you is, uh, wh- how do you see these farmer protests uh, in a in a more broad socio-political sense from uh, Punjab's point of view? Uh, do you do you think this is somewhat of a tipping point? Do they reflect a sort of crossover point where uh, decades of grievances are finally coming out in a certain way? through a particular agenda which this time are a set of farmer law, uh, agrarian laws do you think there's something bigger in these protests thank you it's a very interesting question uh, if i can add a little comment to what you how you introduced our talk uh, yes farmers breached all the barricades with great ingenuity and courage but they also did something very gentle alongside they served langar to the policemen they were fighting repeatedly barricade after barricade fell and barricade after barricade the farmers opened langar which is communal food for the anybody who wants to partake in that and they fed the policemen along the way they were coming that i think was a very very important part of this marching towards delhi you know what you ask is very uh, interesting because in some ways the green revolution model of agriculture which we needed to start with in india in the 1960s at that time the larger punjab haryana was part of the same punjab you know uh, they 
they were a total of about 3% of the nation's land, but they, for the last six decades, they have been contributing up to 50 to 60% of the central pool of grains for the country. Uh, you must remember that in the 1960s, we were faced with a severe food shortage. Uh, we had a sense that it might become again another great Bengal famine of the 1943 in which 4.3 million people had died. Uh, the governments were very keen that uh, we become food sufficient and within a decade of the Green Revolution, India indeed became food sufficient. Uh, and it's a different matter that this year in the hunger index, we are back to 94 out of 107 countries. And we need to understand how did this also happen? How did we become from completely food sufficient to so hungry once again? And that is where in a reflection, you can see all that has gone wrong with the Green Revolution model as well. You said, is it a tipping point? I have a slightly different take on it because, you know, uh, the farmers of Punjab, Haryana, Western Uttar Pradesh, North Madhya Pradesh, Eastern Rajasthan, and the farmers who have since the Green Revolution uh, done very, very well for themselves, farmers for Bihar, farmers from Bengal, farmers from Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, all these states, uh, Kerala, um, Madhya Pradesh, which is a huge uh, cotton belt and a sugar belt. You know, all of them have been trying their best to continue functioning within the system of agriculture that was available to them. But in the last two decades, you have seen about three lakh farmer suicides as well. So one is India tipping down to 94 on hunger index. Another is another three lakh suicides in the last 20 years. Something is severely wrong with what is going on in agriculture. The farmers of the country actually, and especially from Punjab, they have been protesting this downfall and have been suggesting measures to the governments, both state and center, which nobody has really listened to in all these years. And now with the new regime, which the Modi government has introduced these three farm bills, plus the electricity bill, we are basically throwing the baby with the bathwater. We are actually throwing out the entire system that we had built, which had problems, definitely problems, which we spoke about just now. But we are giving up the whole thing to corporates, to private players. This has not only angered the farmers, it has also caused a sense that their very survival, their very livelihood, their system of life, everything is going to collapse under a private corporate regime. And they see it as a second colonization of the agrarian sector by the private crony capitalists. So that is where the anger comes from. That definitely the system had issues, but you can't demolish the complete system and try to replace it with private ownership. Uh, um, not ownership. I mean, the entire agrarian system is largely private. And it's actually the biggest private sector in the country though it is held in very, very small parts by millions of farmers, you know, uh, but by crony capitalists, I mean, uh, you can't give it to them like this. And that is what has uh, brought about this 
the surge, I think, and I don't think it is hundreds and thousands. But my understanding at present, there are about three and a half to four lakh farmers who have gherawed Delhi and who are pushing for nothing less than the government taking back its three laws plus the agricultural law, the electricity law. Right. Firstly, thank you for reminding us that there was a, a sense of tenderness or an element of tenderness amidst all the steely resolve uh, or the fierceness, uh, the fact uh, that that langars became a prominent feature of the agitation uh, or the marching contingent itself shows that. Um, so I'm grateful to you for reminding us of that. Uh, secondly, thanks for giving us a broader historical context uh, and, and drawing attention to the broader structures that are driving these protests or the structural grievances that are driving these protests. Every movement, um, you know, has a certain build-up. Never, never, never appears out of the blue. At least a movement of this scale. Um, so thank you for telling us what it actually means um, in a in a temporal or historical uh, sense, right? Uh, but what I want to understand from you uh, is this this almost automatic conflation of the protests. But what I want to understand from you is. Um, that a lot of the protesters happen to be from Punjab and a lot many of them happen to be Sikh. So there is there's this almost certain, uh, you know, spontaneous conflation of um, the protests with the Sikh identity and then attached to that this malicious or systematic attempt uh, by the media and the larger public discourse uh, to, you know, conflate the protesters with the Khalistani movement with a clear attempt to discredit the entire uh, agitation, right? So what do you think about this? You know, the state narrative is that the farmers don't understand the bills, mm. you know. And then there is, of course, the media. You can even now notice that hardly any television media is covering the protests. I have been very deeply involved with it, and I noticed that between... Saturday evening and Monday morning, even print media stopped talking about the protest. Before that, there were news updates every half an hour, one hour, but now they started becoming 20 hours, 22 hours. Suddenly after Tuesday, again, print media is covering. This is an evolving thing going on right now in front of us. So we have to be very, very cautious of how it is really being projected. You know, so that is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's still not the larger public. It is the media, it's the government. Larger public, I think urban India, which is what we are really talking about here, we are speaking in English, which is the language of urban India. We are all actually one or two or three generations out of the villages. You know, And I don't get it that why don't, have we really forgotten the reasons we left the village in the first place? And have we really forgotten that there are people still in the villages who are suffering? We are suffering in urban situations as well, no doubt about it. But there is an agrarian India, which is easily about 53% of India. And this India has been suffering and has not been looked at by even the neoliberal policies that came in in 1991. The whole thrust of the neoliberal policies was towards uh, urban growth and industry. They neglected the agrarian sector. You know, so uh, what, and the second thing that you added is, uh, which is genuine, I mean, it's happening, 
that there is a element of Sikh dominating the protests. It's not really like that in the sense that the numbers of people who have come from all over the country, uh, North India, at least even Gujarat and Maharashtra now, uh, they perhaps the Sikhs would not be uh, in great num- as great numbers as the rest of India. Yet there is something about Punjab and Punjab's uh, leadership of sorts of this protest. And that is because Sikhs are noticed quite easily by the world. And when they start adding this Khalistan narrative, it just shows me that the rest of India, especially the liberal class, which sort of makes up the mind of India, which writes in media, which is the one which assumes that it knows India and can talk about India, has no idea of what the Khalistan movement was or what has changed in the Khalistan, in the word Khalistan over the decades and where we are now compared to where we were in the 1980s and where we were in the 1980s compared to where we were in the 1920s. You know, this idea of statehood or of uh, a Sikh state is basically an idea of where can we be secure? It's an idea every human being asks. Every animal asks this question. Every bird asks this question. Where am I safe? And so right from the 1927, when Motilal Nehru presented a draft of the Purna Savraj, Jinnah, um, Ambedkar, and Master Tara Singh opposed it. The Jinnah trajectory led to, sadly, the creation of Pakistan, which I completely feel sad about, because why should we break down like that? Um, Ambedkar's trajectory has led to the rise of Bahujan politics in which we now live. And it is very important that we acknowledge that politics. But the Sikh question at that time just didn't go anywhere. And by the 80s, it became a militancy issue. It became uh, an armed struggle against the state. You are from Assam. You know what happened in Assam as well. We can't neglect all these issues and bundle them away and throw them away as if we don't want to touch them. You know, There are genuine issues here of people, and we must ask them, of course, Punjab played with blood, like Assam played with blood. You know, we lost about 50,000 people at that time. There have been 25,000 disappearances, illegal killings, and extrajudicial killings. So the current idea of Khalistan is really a human rights question. That are we never going to give justice to, to the families who lost their people, the communities who lost their people? And there are, of course, a few state agents who continue making the Khalistan into a separatist movement, that is not really what it is. So I think this is a farmer's movement. We must remain focused on food sufficiency for India. We must remain focused on whether the farmers are genuinely going to benefit from the new system or not. They were already not benefiting from the previous system. And what they are now saying is take back these laws, which basically means that bring back status quo. Actually, they are not asking for status quo as well. They are saying that take back the laws and then let's talk about the real issues which are we are facing on the ground. Right. See, to understand it even more easily, uh, think about what has happened to health in the country since neoliberalism. Basically, we had a very 
a fairly well-functioning health system in the country. I was born in a government hospital. My father was born in a government hospital, you know, and but by the 90s, when we decided, okay, we want private players to come at government does not have funds to run the all the hospitals in the country and let private players come there and they start taking over and providing people whatever they need. We realize now 20 years later that that did not work out. We basically abandoned the government hospital. Similarly, look at education. What did the government do? It started bringing in private players into education. And what happened? The government schools failed. I studied in government schools. I studied in government colleges. I studied in government universities. Where is that government-sponsored education and health system in India now? And then why are we doing that with the APMC Mondays, which are actually the equivalent of schools and hospitals? We should not be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as I earlier said to you. There are definite issues with how the agrarian system is set up that needs corrections, but these laws are not going to do that. In fact, these laws are taking us exactly where we went with education, education and health. Right. Um, actually, yes, that, that comparison you made with health and education actually makes it more illustrative uh, and clearer uh, what this issue is really about. Uh, is it just about three specific uh, agrarian bills or agrarian laws or is it a larger structural uh, socio-economic issue or also a very deeply political issue and also yeah how you you know spoke about um, how this entire narrative of self-determination or a particular peripheral minority uh, being heavily securitized you know and you said I come from Assam yeah I do understand the somewhat common history that um, my state shares with yours in fact we have we even had the same uh, police chief once upon a time during a very dark, particularly dark phase of in the history of in the modern history of both states, uh, Mr. KPS Gill, right? So yeah, I do understand what you're talking about there, and very rightly so. Um, but Amandeep, what I want to understand now is um, you have travelled extensively through Punjab, particularly its countrysides. And you have been closely involved in the ongoing agitation. You've spoken to many people there. Um, what really is the cross-section of people, uh, particularly within the Punjabi context, who are participating uh, in the current protests? Because in the last 50-60 days of agitation that was ongoing in Punjab, uh, for instance, the Shambhu Morcha protest, we have seen you know, a wide range of people like artists, singers, actors, and many other non-farming allies also participate in the protest very actively. Right. Um, so are we seeing some kind of unprecedented across the board participation this time? Absolutely. And uh, that I think is the great credit of this movement that is going on. And uh, I will come to Punjab, but let me add something in really big words here is we are loving it that Haryana is with us. Right. You know, if you look at the uh, history of the last 50 years of Punjab, uh, most of the issues came because of the division when Haryana was carved out of Punjab, you know, and uh, we could not agree on river waters, we could not agree on various other things. This time, the spirit Haryana has showed to Punjab is, to my mind, actually, we are going back to East Punjab, you know, which after partition we were left with when three two thirds of Punjab went off to Pakistan, you know. 
So it is a great surge of that kind, which is incredible, actually. At the another level where it is incredible is uh, that uh, most of the Punjab protests, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Most of the yeah, yeah most of the Punjab protests over the last hundred years have been about one community or the other, uh, mostly about Sikhs, uh, whether it's a Gurdwara movement or whether it was the Punjabi Suba movement, uh, Gurdwara movement in the 1920s, the Muzara movement, which was uh, uh, land to tiller movement in the 1930s, 40s, 50s the Punjabi Suba movement, which was basically an Akali movement. Um, most of these movements have been about one community. But what we need to notice is that Punjab is largely an agrarian state, uh, and this is structural. The government has chosen to keep it as the food basket, what they call of India. Uh, and that's why there's not much industry in Punjab. Uh, and because it is agrarian, uh, there is, of course, the farmer and 65% of the 18 lakh or so farmers in Punjab are basically small and marginal. Then there are another five to seven lakh uh, workers, laborers in, in Punjab who are mostly Dalits, you know, and then there is the, the Baniya, the, and these farmers are mostly Sikh. Uh, then there are the Hindu Baniyas, who are the Artiyas and who are the shopkeepers, and uh, they are a big part. There are about 30,000 Artiyas in Punjab. Uh, their whole future is at stake because most of their money has been invested in these farmers. And if this changes, they are not going to recover their money at all. Uh, the sh small shopkeepers, the agricultural uh, instrument makers, uh, the truck drivers, all of this. So it is a huge part of Punjab across religion, across caste, which is going to suffer from these laws. And that is why Punjab has beautifully come together along with Haryana and Punjab and Haryana have both come together. As far as singers go, yes, uh, there is also an interest from the singers. Uh, some of them have uh, given beautiful songs uh, we must recognize this idea of singers in Punjab because they are sort of folk heroes, you know, mm -hmm. and they were folk heroes until now because at least in the last two, three decades, they have been singing of, of guns and um, misogynistic songs, you know, about mm -hmm. jacked pride and stuff like that. But uh, with this movement starting, many of them started producing songs about the real issues of Punjab and the agrarian distress of Punjab. And they have come with us. Um, middle class is still not as active. And I really want not only middle class of India, but actually the whole nation's middle class to start taking interest in this protest. Because you know what? The first to suffer, the first to suffer from this is going to be the middle class. Right. And I'll tell you why. With ESMA removed and stockpiling of farm produce made unlimited, private players are going to jump into the market, pick up all the produce, stock them in their go-downs, and then play with market rates and keep a high level of inflation going so that most of the food items are going to be highly priced. And who pays for this? 
you remember this that the farmer produces food he will still eat from his field it is the urban middle class who has no connection with land who can only buy things from the big bazaars and the reliance stores and you know go shopping you know these are the guys we are the guys who are going to first face the problem just notice a few days back onions went up to 100 rupees a kg and why there was enough supply in maharashtra but the traders were playing their games and this is these are the games that we are going to enter into if we do not oppose these laws right now and we can't really let crony capitalists rule us right right so uh, yes it 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 mostly it seems like from all the discussions that well this is you know this is a farmer farmers issue uh, why should the urban elite bother so much but yes it's fascinating how you drew that link um except you know the fear is that the urban middle class that we have is perhaps one of the most uh depoliticized middle classes um in 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 the in the world today i would say um amandeep i something that i want to understand from you and something that i've been thinking about myself um regarding the protests and how um outsiders quote unquote outsiders see the protests uh, particularly the urban liberal middle class or just the urban middle class you know in this regard i have i personally have come across many uh, visuals on social media um for instance the single protester taking the full force uh, of the water cannon right uh, and then um, for instance there's a picture of one farmer eating a single roti right and then the caption says something like uh, this is the frugality of the farmer this is the resolve of the farmer uh, you know so by doing so i think there is a great risk of over romanticization of the deplorable conditions of a set of people who actually deserve to live a comfortable and dignified life right so so by by uh, romanticizing the frugality or the poverty of these farmers we limit the discussion right we we are not able to move forward there is also the thing about the corona virus right um so uh, a lot of people observing the protests particularly the urban crowd again uh, um, you know tend to believe that no the farmers are absolutely uh, not concerned about covid-19 right um but the fact is that you know even they are human beings and they they have families uh, who worry about their elderly members going into the protests right so uh, th- they might have some genuine concerns about about the virus about the virus spreading because of the agitation right but then again it comes back comes down to a compromise that they have to make right uh, i remember seeing this one farmer uh, speaking to a police in a tv channel report uh, in which the farmer told the police ki hame bhi to corona ka dar hai lekin gale mein to phansi ka phanda laga hua hai right so it's a compromise it's a constant compromise for them to see what matters at this point right so in that regard do you genuinely believe that there is this there is a tendency that there is a phenomenon where uh, the urban liberal middle class often uh, perhaps with genuine intentions but often ends up uh, over glorifying something that should not be glorified of course there is an element of that and you know the issue really is the urban middle liberal middle class lives somewhere in stratosphere they don't live on planet earth right you know they are just happy gazing at everything they are the spectator class of this country you know more or less their lives are set you know they have jobs they are getting salaries they go to the market they pick up what they need uh, they go to fancy holidays they they most of them are double income families 
you know, um, their kids go to fancy schools. So they don't really know what is going on on the ground. They have, through their education and through their caste as well, inured themselves of the larger issues of this nation. So when they look at something like this, I mean, of course, their hearts beat. They are also sensitive in, to some extent, but they're not informed well enough. My really, I, I've been <laughs> saying this for the last few days is, you know, all of us in this country, especially urban folks, we should all go and do a one-year immersive experience in villages. Right. Look at what two cycles of crops do to people. You know, one, um, one rabi and one kharif crop. You know, we call it hadi and sauni, you know, in Punjab. But that's what you should do. You should understand what is going on on the ground. You know, this picture of a single roti or this picture of standing in front of the water cannon, this is aesthetics. Absolutely. But I am of the opinion as a writer, I'm of the opinion that aesthetics for aesthetics sake is not really the kind of work I want to do. My aesthetic has to be grounded, it has to be rooted, and it has to come from what is going on, on in reality, you know, in the people. As far as COVID is concerned, look at this again very carefully. Huh? In COVID, when COVID happened, we moved on a certain emotional graph as a society. We started with bravado, with all those balcony gatherings and thali pitoing and all that kind of stuff. You know. And then we suddenly became very scared because the cases started going up. And then we got so tired of being scared that we abandoned all caution to the wind. What has been going on now for, see, COVID came in about, I mean, we became serious about it about seven months back. You know, initially we denied it. Then we did this lockdown. And then we suddenly started focusing on opening the economy. We even conducted a state elections in this period. We even allowed all sorts of religious functions to happen. You know, this is not how any country of the size of India should handle a pandemic. I think it's an utter failure of the government in how they manage the whole pandemic. And people see that, right? People on the ground, people in the villages. Also remember COVID is largely an urban phenomenon. And that's for a very simple reason that the, that the virus stays in the air for a while before it falls on the ground. And when air is not moving, when you have closed rooms and ACs working, there are greater chances of infection than where farmers actually live in the villages which are open air and the winds are blowing all the time, right? So when they know that the government anyway doesn't care for us, you know, and this is the sense they have on the ground that this is a mess, you know, they know it is a mess. And that's very sad of a government to allow the citizens to feel that it has really become a mess. Right. Now there is this challenge and the government had to use the pandemic exactly to bring out these ordinances and then bulldoze them through the parliament, really bulldoze them without quora of the Rajya Sabha present and make these laws. You know, a farmer has, if he has anything, he has a great instinct. They live amidst nature. However technological we have made that nature now because of green revolution, we fill it with hybrid seeds, we put pesticides, fertilizers, we use tractors and combined harvesters. It's become very technocratic. 
but they still look at the sky to know whether it will rain or not they have this very deep instinct and their instinct tells them that the government has played a game that under the cover of pandemic they brought out this large um, laws uh, large in the sense of the impact of the laws and they are going to take these farmers for a ride now a farmer will not allow the government to do that i just hope that the pandemic doesn't spread more there i mean we don't have uh, cases shooting up but very frankly i have been every single day of the pandemic i have been looking at various websites to understand the numbers and i feel that there's a big lie going on even in how the numbers are projected there is of course a big lie going on in between the two tests you know the rt pcr test and the antigen tests we should be doing rt pcr but we are doing antigen and we are calling them tests you know right. so there is something very wrong going on in the management of the pandemic in the country and the farmers are not going to be sitting back uh, with the fear that oh god i'll get covid the the single uh, shiniest light in this whole pandemic is also that the fatality rate is not as high as was initially estimated it was a new disease we didn't know what will happen the fatality rate has remained low um, roughly about 1% and uh, it's a it's a razor's edge that the farmer walks to do this protest right amandeep i have one last question uh, you, you have you have already written um, a few days back in a piece that uh, these the, the delhi chalo protests have sort of shattered the miasma of hindutva arrogance uh, do you do you really see this as a formidable or uh, as as a as a unprecedented moment of collective resistance um, in the context of the last 6 years since this government came to power we have had the shahin bagh sit in last year uh, which attracted a lot of attention it went on for a long time and then covid shattered it but do you see these protests as something that might irreversibly discredit the, the hindutva regime do you see it as that uh i i i would say i am apprehensive on that front uh, because perhaps the last few elections have um sort of you know uh, made me apprehensive of how protests actually translate into votes or no votes i agree with that uh in fact uh, i was doing that piece for amazon on the effects of the lockdown and i was talking to a lot of migrant labor who was right. walking back home i think it was our utter tragedy that that happened right. you know that a train runs over people who are sleeping on the tracks they sleep on the tracks because the tracks have less mosquitoes on them you know it's like a very simple reason for them to sleep on tracks you know they can't sleep on road sides because they never share of vehicles they can't sleep in shrubs because they're full of insects and mosquitoes so tracks are clearer places in that sense you know but anyway but uh, i was asking uh, a lot of migrant workers uh, who do they blame for their tragedy and uh, i think every single respondent said god you know india is a largely fatalistic country the 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 cloud of power that is laid upon the poor and the marginal of the country is so dense that they can't see whether 
their oppression is coming from God or from a political elite of the country. You know, they are unable to distinguish, and that has shown up in the Bihar results as well. Uh, on elections, I know this is freewheeling, so I'm mentioning this as a freewheeling conversation. You must notice that since Gujarat's 2017 elections, every single counting day of the ballot, results freeze at 5 p.m., numbers get stuck on your television screen, and they start moving only by 11 p.m., 12 p.m., 1 p.m., 2, 2, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Something happens. I don't know what happens, but I've been seeing this as a pattern. There has been discussion, of course, of the EVM being tampered, but I see this as a very direct pattern. You know, uh, basically, what happens is that the when a candidate wins, uh, the message has to go to Delhi and it has to be signed. The certificate has to be signed by Delhi and given to the candidate, and that process is in the evening, and manipulation happens at that point. You know. Um, what was your second part of your question? That do you think, I think perhaps you have already answered. Ah, yeah, yeah. Challenge to yeah. Hindutva. Challenge yes, yes. to Hindutva. Yes, yeah. yes I, I, I have been a big cynic myself. I am I'm very disappointed by how the country has gone in the last few years. And I have been feeling that uh, uh, it's uh, the tunnel is getting darker, you know. Uh, we will have Hindutva winning for the next 20, 25 years. It worries me a lot. Uh, but you know what? In this protest, I started by saying that nothing will happen. Oh. And then I started talking again to people a lot. And uh, everybody tells me one single thing. And they say, look at the eyes of the protesters. Look at their resolve. And the protesters are this is a do or die situation for us. They have said that we are going to force the government to take back the laws. And they are, they are steadfast on that goal. The BJP government, especially Narendra Modi, has never taken back any law or even um, an ordinance. You know, So it is that. But I really see this. Uh, what is going on only because Punjab is sort of leading the protests. All, all farmers, everybody who is a part of this are equally part of the protest. There is no discrimination between them. But the nature it has taken is of basically seven years of Hindutva and whatever the Hindutva government has, has spread a sense of a miasma of fear in the society is pitted against 700 years of Punjab's valorous history in which Punjab has taken on Delhi repeatedly, whether it was the Mughal Empire or the British Empire or whoever came to Delhi, Punjab stood up to it. It is seven years of Hindutva pitted against 700 years of Punjab. And let us see who wins. Right. Well, it's uh, being a cynic myself, it's always good to talk to a fellow cynic, I think. But yes, we can only hope that this moment, you know, translates or transforms into something bigger than itself. Um, but I agree with you that seeing the last four or five years and the electoral gains that the Hindutva regime, the Hindutva political project has made, uh, it becomes very difficult to hope for something. But I th I'm sure you would agree, even us cynics are often humbled by certain things, by moments like these, for instance, you said the look on the eyes in the eyes of the farmer. 
so i think there is still some hope that uh, this will lead to something constructive something bigger um, i would say in terms of uh, holding meaning i think the farmers have already achieved remarkably and they have already etched a certain moment um in 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 our times that will be remembered for a long time to come uh, but thank you so much amandeep for so patiently explaining and making actually making sense of this entire protest in a much broader sense i don't think i've i have um come across what you said your points of view the perspectives that you presented anywhere so far um and i i must i must confess i haven't read your books which certainly i will now and i also hope to have you join me in this show sometime in the future um and have a conversation perhaps on this topic or something else thank you so much thank you so much for inviting me it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, you know i think uh, this whole short bite media culture that has spread right now is a little problematic because right. people don't get to the depth of things and i think we had a very good conversation